You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Prodi Machining, and this week I am rejoined by Joe Rogan Buck of Cobra Frame Building. Welcome back, Joe. Well, thanks for having me on again. Of course. For anybody who wants to hear his backstory, he was on all the way back in episode 76. So head back and listen to that one. But this time I have Joe back on because, you know, it, it seemed like it, right after your recording, things started just, you know, the ball was rolling. Like you, you hired an employee, you, you know, got a new shop now. There's there's so many things to talk about. So I guess fill us all in what's been happening in the last year. Yeah. Yeah. It's been pretty wild. You know, I think about four years ago, I bought a 1996 CNC mill, my old Bridgeport torque cut 22. And I feel like ever since then, things have been at a pretty nutso kind of pace, especially because like, I felt like I really lived my twenties like a dirt bag and, and things it's not that they weren't moving, but like lately they just really move. And yeah. So since that last uh, podcast there. Let's see. I was I was on the cusp of releasing our frame building fixture, you know, for welding like artisan bike frames. And so that was mostly developed, but it's just it's such a complicated assembly. And and I kept saying over and over again, I said, you can't sell any of it until you have all of it. You know, so like I had most of the parts together, but I needed with anodizing on this thing. And last minute I realized an issue with that and whatever. And so that was taking a while. And then I was right when we recorded in December, I think I was trying to hire somebody and I had already talked to the guy that I ended up hiring, Zach, who's awesome. And and he started in like mid-January then. And uh, we've been working together since then. So yeah, I released that frame fixture. Then he was on board and, you know, he was new. He was, he, he came from the guitar industry. So he's like very good with handwork. I would say he's better at handwork than me when it comes to like, hand filing and chiseling and and especially woodwork of course but also he went to trade school for welding so like we do a little bit of welding and i hate to say it but he's a better tig welder than me so <laughs> he's very good at that and i'm like i'm okay at welding bike stuff i'm like kind of decent if i get in the groove but he's better at it than me which is awesome but you know kind of maybe hurts my pride a little bit and <laughs> and so anyway you know, just trying to get him up to speed so he knows how to ship stuff and inventory and manage things and, and like, you know, teaching him how to load parts in the machine. Then through the spring, well, like in February, we really needed a better way to mark parts. And we bought a one of those 20 watt fiber lasers off eBay that everybody's buying. And it's been great. He Actually, that was great. I cut him loose on that project. And so I said, you know, I could learn how to do this and like teach you or something. I got my own stuff. Like, can you figure this out? And he had uh, the Adobe Creative Cloud, and so, yeah, basically, like he he took that up and he started, you know, laser etching stuff, and we would talk about it and how to make sure that everything came out good, and that's been really awesome to like. It's it's a really good feeling to hire somebody and then like have them start a whole new department for you or like a whole new capability, and like I love learning technical things, but there's just only so much time. And I'm like, honestly, I'm more excited about some other things than laser marking. So I kept saying, like, I was like, one of these days, like, I'm going to, we're going to sit down. You're going to teach me how to use it. But like, that's, it's never happened. Like, I, just, I don't even really know how to use it. And it's kind of awesome, but it's a little sad. Like if I, if I did like a home gamer project or something where I made something cool for myself, I would want to know how to laser etch stuff onto it. But honestly, I can just have him do that when he's in, you know, so like, it's not, it's not a big deal, but <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you pay him. So if you ever do yeah. want to learn, you just say, hey, 
let's take a half a day and you teach me how to do this or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And he's definitely gotten, you know, as you would imagine, he's gotten a lot better at it where like, you know, he's done research and we we're trying to get it to etch better on stainless so that rather than sort of like, I think it's a little, maybe a little bit easier to do sort of like we do a lot of 17, four stainless. And so, you know, you might have sort of like a Brown, like a lighter gray Brown. It's not that dark, but like, what if you wanted a really deep black etch, you know? And so he, he figured out how to play with the settings and get it just looking better over time. And, and some of the settings are just painfully slow for the cycle, but then you can tweak things and it runs just as well, but it's like five times faster. So he figured a lot of that stuff out and it's been huge for us. We do a little bit of precision marking or, you know, relatively precision marking for like millimeter scales and angle scales. And I feel like that's the wrong use for that tool. And we're still doing it for that stuff, but you just, I feel like you got to piss away so much time getting the setup right. Because here you have like parts that are finished, that are dimensionally accurate, that are ready to ship. And then you will scrap them if you laser etch them wrong. So you got to be so careful. And then we don't scrap that much, but we scrapped a little bit and it's, it sucks. So anyway, it's the wrong tool for that stuff, but it's a tool we have and you can produce a really good result. But when you're just like blasting a logo onto something and the size and the scale and the rotation are not deadly critical, that stuff's pretty easy. And yeah, um, well, I imagine there's quite a bit of parallax error built in just from the way that it focuses and yeah. moves the laser. So that I'm yeah. sure accounting for that must be a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it kind of sucks. And you know, I don't know that I would be any better at it than him, but I don't even, you know, it's just like, I just let him do it. And then, you know, he, he spends it and we wanted to make a gauge for the one thing to, to like, we have an angle that we burn into this an angle scale that we burn into something. And so, you know, I wanted that one's a little bit hard. You can't just like measure that with your calipers, your rulers easily. So I wanted to build like a physical CNC engraved chunk of aluminum to hold up against it. But by all accounts, like the way we measure it right now, which is just more tedious, it it can produce really, really good results. You just have to watch it kind of closer than I would like. Yeah. And because some people will tell you like, oh man, these lasers are so easy. If you can run a CNC, it's easy. But like, we're pretty fussy. So <laughs> like if you really want a good result every time and you don't want to scrap finished parts, it, it takes, it takes some work, but. Well, they, um, they come out great. I mean, I, I watch a bunch of your stories and your posts and stuff and you know, yeah. your, your parts really are like candy for, you yeah. know, bike builders and then even for people who don't build bikes, but just get like follow yeah. along. So. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, that's credit to Zach mostly. And my girlfriend is a graphic designer. So like on some of the things I'll tell her kind of like what I'm thinking and I could get it most of the way there, but that's not really my skill set or my toolkit. And then she actually does that for a living. So it's like child's play for her to like make a simple thing, but then it looks really good. And then Zach is an excellent technician who also has a pretty good eye for um, design himself. And he's something of an artist, you know, and so anyway, like, I feel like it, th it really made me proud once or twice when we would do something and it was like all of us together, you know, kind of made like we do a data plate on the fixture. And so it's like, it's kind of like a machine tag on your CNC or something, but it's just uh, actually, these are really cool. So what we do is we get, uh, I drew a rectangle in CAD with filleted corners and then I sent it to send cut send and it's like one millimeter aluminum or something. And then when we do a run of black anodized type two, at our material, you know, anodizer, then I do these little plates and they actually look really good. I thought that if you just got laser cut sheet good from send cut send, it would look kind of scratched up and 
nicks and stuff, but they actually turn out really good. And then once we get them back from anodize, then you can blast them with the laser. So we get to control the size and proportions of the tag. And then using like, you know, Adobe Illustrator or something, we can control all of the information and the way it looks. And then we blast it on with the laser. So we have a high degree of control and a high degree of flexibility. And so when somebody buys this, you know, $4,000 bike frame building fixture from us, we can blast their logo on it and we can do the build date and we can tell the revision number. And it has a little QR code that links to the resources page on our website. So it's, it's pretty slick. And then it just gets, uh, we use 3M VHB tape to like stick it onto the fixture. And so I think it's a really good process because it allows us to like really customize this tool without, without it being very complicated for us. Yeah. Yeah. They, they look really, really neat. And like, it's those little touches that I think set products like yours apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I, I, it's a really good process actually. And if you made some other tool, I would, I would, I mean, don't rip me off in the same industry maybe, but like, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's beautiful how like just laser cutting some sheet goods and then anodizing it and blasting it with a laser. I mean, we, we do have a fair amount of time into those sometimes like trying to get it look just to get, get it to look just so and setting up the laser for just one part, but we have very little cost into them. And I think it adds quite a little, quite a lot of professionalism and desire to the yeah. Thing, so. Well, it's in the same vein. It was like, you know, Grimsmo engraving the inside of his knives, you know, with the date and like made in Canada and stuff. Like, I feel like it's very much yeah. those little touches that set products apart from just, you know, something I can buy on Alibaba or Amazon yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. And we don't really advertise it, but let's say that you bought the fixture and then later you sold it to somebody else or whatever, or you changed, let's say you changed the name of your brand or something and you wanted it. We have like four different custom fields on there. And one of them says built for, and it says their name. Well, if you wanted to change that for some reason, you could email us. And I've said, this is too low of a price, but I've said for $15, we'll make you a new one and mail it to you. And then and then you can change it out. And I just, I think it's a cool thing to be able to offer to somebody, you know, that they could get a customized one. So. Yeah, definitely. So what about training him in CNC? How has that been? Cause you were somewhat self-taught. I mean, you, you had your job as well, but uh, a lot of this, you know, you went through on your own. So how did that influence you teaching him and then bring him up to speed to run machines? That's gone a lot slower than I might have predicted. And I feel like we're really starting to pick up a little more speed with that lately. But he he's like very good with, you know, handwork and making stuff. And also he rides bikes. He's a lot better of like a mountain biker than I'll ever be. And so like it's I feel like he's a really good fit in the shop and he's very he, he was a good fit for what I needed, which is somebody who is ready to show up and do the work that needed to be done who could be excited about it and somebody who wasn't going to drive me insane to like be with 40 hours a week. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think like at least for a while, it, may, it maybe seemed a little bit like he was maybe more interested in like frame building and like the work generally than in like the, spe the specifics of like the, the CNC setup and programming and all that. And I think we've been busy enough with everything that like, you know, I'm not sitting like twiddling my thumbs being like, well, I guess I'll teach him another thing. And so it, it kind of was, it, it took a while, I think, to get into that where I was teaching him much. Like he learned pretty quickly how to operate the machines and the r routine things he learned pretty quickly. But like even, for instance, on my Haas machine, the way that I do probing is I have fusion templates where I've modeled the vice and the parallels if I use parallels and I modeled the stock and I've had I joint the model in like I use a derive and I drop in the solid model of the part into the thing. So anyway, I have a template. 
And, and then when I export it, the probing is built in. So when I walk up to the machine and I load a new program, when you hit cycle start, the probe comes out and it finds the part and then it continues on. So it already knows roughly where the part is and it just adjusts it slightly if it needs to. And the, the beauty of that anyway, is that you don't ever need to like jog the probe around and go through like Haas has those VPS templates. You don't need to use those day to day. It's pretty awesome. And we have a standard tool library. So the point of this is that anyway, after working for me and running the machine for like a year, when we're doing a setup or an odd job and we do have to actually probe things, he doesn't know how to do that. <laughs> Just kind of funny. He always, <laughs> he always forgets how to do it. It's so easy, but you know, you need to do it every so often to remember like, you know, right. on the Haas, you go edit and then you go VPS and then you probing and whatever. And he always forgets the first step. He's like, which menu is that in? But it's just because we don't do that stuff very often. So anyway, more recently, we've had the opportunity to like actually, he's, he's been getting into the 3D printing, which is awesome. And so I'm like teaching him more about, you know, like properly constraining your sketches and how to, how to draw stuff in Fusion. And then he's kind of, he's just making a ton of little like assembly and organization tools, which is awesome. And pretty soon, I think that'll lead more into us like actually programming and doing CNC stuff together. But so far, I've been the only one who really, you know, does cam and who does modeling of stuff. And, and that's worked. But, you know, long term, I first of all, I would just like him to be able to learn everything. And I think it's cool and he'd probably enjoy it. But I mean, someday I need to be able to, you know, not have to do all of that myself. Right. I mean, that, that's a pretty awesome testament though to your processes that like he forgets how to probe you know <laughs> well and on and on a Haas too like it'd be something if you had like a 2002 Fanuc with a Renishaw and you had to do the you know 9865 sub program whatever it is you know G65 P9865 something like that I, I don't remember the numbers but you know like on the on the Haas with the next generation control I have a 2019 Haas like it it's pretty user-friendly and this is not i'm not i'm not insulting my employees intelligence i'm just saying we don't do it that often right right, right exactly i mean yeah but clearly your templates are working so that's pretty pretty awesome yeah i think and i so i've talked to you about this a little bit i would love to make youtube videos about machining i have a youtube channel for anyone who doesn't know that's about frame building related stuff i think it's got like 21 or twenty-two thousand subscribers which is awesome it really great yeah, it hasn't grown much the last couple of years because I haven't made many videos since like the fall of 2019 or something. But anyway, that's all related. So this is an aside, but all the content on that channel is pretty decidedly related to my customer's interest. So my customer is somebody who thinks that it would be cool to be an artisan and build some bike frames. And so I have videos that are pertaining to that. And that does a couple things. First of all, I enjoy making those videos and I can be helpful. But second of all, it, like, it helps me build rapport with my potential customer base. And so videos can be kind of time intensive and sometimes expensive to produce. And so like, if I'm going to do that with my time, it really helps that it's going to help me sell more stuff. And so anyway, I would love to make videos about CNC machining. That actually sounds like more fun to me than making videos about fabricating bikes. But that doesn't so directly help me sell stuff or like market. So anyway... But I, I would like to do it, and I have a whole list, and I shared some of these with you a couple months ago, but I have I have a whole list of ideas of all these things that I want to share, like the way that I use my Haas machine and the side mount tool changer, and I have a standard tool library. I know that there are probably other people who do it the same way as me, but I haven't seen anybody do it the same way as me. Like, for instance, the Saunders Machine Works S-Tools system. Mm-hmm. 
that's brilliant in its own way, but I don't like it as much as what I do <laughs> personally. I think part of the reason that he had to use that system is because he has more than one machine and because some of his machines, at least at the time that he made it, they had an umbrella, like an Ahaz umbrella tool changer. And so for him, the elegance of my brilliant system doesn't work. But I think my <laughs> system is when you only have one Haas machine with a side mount tool changer, or possibly if you had multiple, I think my system is phenomenally good. And I would love to make a video to share that. And I would love to make a video that shows how I have, how I do these templates with the work holding and everything. So that when you hit cycle start on a new program, the probe finds the part and it just subtly adjusts your X offset so that you don't need to set up a work stop every time. Because for me, I'm doing like medium volumes, low volumes. And so for me, th reducing the setup time and increasing the cycle time is a trade that I'll make, you know, five times out of 10 or nine times out of 10. Right. Now I'm actually working towards a very similar workflow once I get my new link plate installed on the S700. Because that's, yeah, I'm, I'm all about trading money for time nine times out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Cause for me, the, I was talking to who was it probably more than one person, but the feed cutting hours on my Haas as of like November or something was like 600, like 600 feed cutting hours. And I, I had it two years at that point. And so it's a really nice machine. And because of all of its features and capability, it allows us to do what we do with, you know, like the probing and the fourth axis really reduces the human labor component but we don't actually run it all the time. It's usually gets turned on every day, but it doesn't run all day, every day. We don't usually have like a whole, it's not the bottleneck, the human right. labor and th that like me basically is the bottleneck. And so I'm trying to, and what's great is that we have capacity to put more and more work on the machine. It'll probably be a while before we need another VMC before we really need one. Right. And I think, yeah, it was uh, Juan at Jack's manufacturing. He had a he had a VF2 SS for like two or three months and he had like three times as many hours or something because <laughs> he bought it for a production job. Right. Yeah. He runs those things ragged for sure. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So for me, the cycle time is a lot less critical than minimizing the setup time. So a lot of times for me to change jobs, I have like a little setup notes document and it'll say like, so, you know, it's United States, everything's Imperial. So like we have like, uh, you know, inch one inch by two inch 60 61 bar stock here's my cut length and then and then i'll have notes about like okay so in the talon jaws in the back of the vise i'm going to visually center the part and then in the front jaws i use one inch parallels or whatever and i set the part visually centered and then if there's a torque spec which sometimes there is then i would you know notate the torque spec and, and all that and when i'm machining the parts then like in order to set up the job all i really need to do is pick up the parallels and put the blocks in the vise and then I just run the program and because the Haas uh, has such a crazy memory, I, I keep every program for like a hundred parts or more just on the control at all times, which is pretty slick. And so anyway, like changeovers between jobs are really very, very easy, which is awesome. But yeah, you know, it, had, it took a lot of work to get there, but it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. It sounds like it's paying off for sure. Yeah. So we had a few questions, both from Nick at P3D talking about the process of buying your new shop. What drove you to purchase instead of continuing to rent? Were there any unexpected challenges? And then Molly No also was asking about the new shop. So let's let's get into all that because you you're now fully moved in, right? Yes. So there's a cool story. 
So for people who follow me closely, you might have heard the story, but back in September, I, I was just looking to pick up an old bridge port. I, I used to have a bridge port. You know, it's my first real machine tool was in 1967. And I sold that in the fall of 2019 when I was, I had ordered my Haas, which was a huge machine. And I just was in a tiny shop. I didn't have any space. So, so I sold that machine to make room. And then now I'm in a bigger shop, you know, and I wanted another bridge port, not really for like, I'm not going to use it for parts that I ship to people, but just like, because we, we sell stuff to bike fabricators and, um, that's a tool that bike fabricators have. So it's really helpful to make YouTube videos <clears throat> if I can, it's helpful for me to make YouTube videos if I have the tools that they have. And it's helpful for me to develop products <clears throat> to help miter those tubes and stuff if I have the same kind of machines that they have. So I wanted to have one in the shop and uh, I was looking around and I found one in my city. And so I Craigslist, you know, I went to go pick it up and it was in the building and the guy was selling all the machines. I asked about the building and ended up, yeah, it was for sale. And so I got the opportunity to buy this building. And basically it was this dude who had been running a shop for 20 years or more out of this space. And he was, uh, it was SNS tool, Scott, really cool dude. And they just made, you know, like, um, like there's a company that makes like <clears throat> tortilla chips. And so, you know, he'd make the equipment for the, you know, he'd repair parts for their line and modify stuff and just people would walk in and whatever, he'd do some job and it was mostly manual machines. They had an EDM and they had a Haas tool room mill and it grinding stuff and whatever. Anyway, you know, they, it was just a job shop and they would do whatever. And it was him and his brother. And at different points, it was some other people, but anyway, uh, his brother wanted to retire. So Scott decided he'd retire too. And, and they were selling everything. And then I asked about the building and he said, yeah, it was for sale. And so I, I had no idea how to buy it. I never really, you know, nobody really wants to rent forever. I don't know. Maybe that's like this idea that like millennials just are not even interested in buying property or something. But for me, like I, I would love the opportunity to buy the right property. And it's just really hard to find. Even rental space is hard to find. And so anyway, <clears throat> I had been thinking for many, many years like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, like, am I going to buy a house and a pole barn or like, it'd be cool to have a shop in the city and have that be separate from your residence because then, <clears throat> then you have some flexibility, right? Like if you have, let's say you're going to run a small business and you want to have like a pole barn or something outside of your house, you pretty much have to live rurally. You have to live right. like outside of a city. And I like riding bikes and I mean, there's nice, th like I grew up in a very rural area, like on a dirt road, but I'd kind of prefer to live in a city. And so anyway, I never really loved the idea of like buying a house outside of a city, 20, 30 miles outside of a city and then having like a pole barn. And then, and then after I got an employee too, like it really kind of changes things. Like, you know, you're going to be working like, like, like there was a m moment where I considered just like getting rid of my apartment and like living in a loft in my shop in the old shop, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, I don't, it, it just would be weird. Like, I think my employee would feel like intrusive and I might feel a little bit intruded upon. And the same thing, like if you had a pole barn at your house, it's just like, especially imagine like building that and growing that, having more and more employees, like people do it, but I just don't know that it's for me. And when I found this building that's in the city of Grand Rapids, it's in a pretty cool spot, actually. I was like, this is, this is like one in a million. This is the jackpot. So, so the building is built in 1983. It's 3,800 square feet. It's uh, it was sort of, it was built like a, it's a block building and it was built 
to be subdivided into two units. So each of them would be half of 3,800, so I guess like 1,900 square feet, right? Oh, and and that's them, why it had the two heaters and all that stuff. Yeah, like, exactly. Split down the so, north, gotcha. Yep. Yeah, it had, a, it had a dividing wall. It had a bathroom on either side. It had an office on either side. It had a furnace on either side. I don't think the electric... No, the electric was sort of metered separately. But anyway, so it was the shop building, and it just seemed like such a good fit. You know, 3,800 square feet is a pretty good size for a business like mine. It's, it's more than I need right now, but I think I could definitely imagine it being enough for quite a long time to come. Like, I, I don't really see myself on a growth track forever. You know, like I needed to grow into a size that would sustain what I'm trying to do. And I feel like I'm mostly there. Like I have most of the equipment that I really need. So I think it's a really comfortable size. And 3,800 is awesome. Like coming from so good. somebody who's in a thousand square foot shop yeah. and like struggling to put things in places. Uh-huh. I, that sounds like the lap of luxury, believe me. It's so nice. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, cause you got to imagine like two years ago, I was still in a 360 square foot shop and it would be if if you two years ago today you'd have to you'd have to fast forward six months until I even got into a fifteen hundred square foot space and that felt like I was on the surface of the moon or something it just felt so expansive <laughs> and then yeah I was in that shop for eighteen months and so now this shop it has two hundred amp four hundred eighty volt three phase service which is sick we have a step down transformer. So we can power the lights and everything. And in fact, it had a goofy, it had a goofy transformer. So like it's a 480 volt Delta three phase system and, and they have a step down transformer so that you get like a 200 amp single phase, 100, 120, 240 volt service. And I just think that's a dumbass transformer to install. Like, cause, cause you could, <laughs> you could, you could install like a 75 kva 120 y type transformer and that would give you 120 volts from line to ground for your single phase equipment and it would give you 208 volts phase to phase and you can power your three phase equipment that's a much more sensible electrical service to install in that kind of shop in my opinion so anyway right. I, I i thought about it for like a month or two as i was doing these renovations and i just switched the transformer i, I bought a used one and don't tell the city of Grand Rapids. But anyway, I totally, I pulled all of the correct permits. Anyway. Of course you did, um, yeah. Of course I did. But yeah, so I switched that over and that's installed now and it's working beautifully. And we have, yeah, basically 200 amps at that power. And if that's ever not enough, I basically have twice that in headroom at that 480 volts. So I could do another step down transformer just for CNC equipment if I ever ran out of power, but I doubt I will. That's a lot and of power. It's a lot of power for what I'm That's doing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's real good. And so, yeah, basically, I don't know. So, so the shop, it, it was built in 1983 and it's kind of funny. It's like they built the building pretty well and then they just kind of used it and nobody ever, like there's, for instance, one of the bathrooms, they hung a door and they hung the door backwards. Like the light switch on the inside is on the wrong side. And <laughs> on the door, there's a hole where there should be a doorknob, right? And in the, in the door trim or whatever you call that, the door jam, they never cut a latch plate into the door. So like you imagine <laughs> in 1983, 39 years ago, they built this building and like somebody hung a door. And then for like 39 years, not a single occupant of this building ever thought that it'd be worth like an hour of their time or whatever <clears throat> to install a freaking doorknob on the bathroom. 
And this is just an example of like a lot of what the building was like. I think originally it was built pretty well. And I think the owners who owned it over the years, they understood that like things like the roof probably needed to be maintained, but just about everything else, they were like, ah, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect our bottom line. We can leave it. That's such a bizarre place to draw the line. Like, yeah, I'm going to hang the door, (laughs) but like, yep, I'm out of time. Can't can't, can't put that door now, bid. Yeah, it's weird, man. And I still haven't fixed it either because as soon as I moved in, there was like bigger fish to fry, but like, God help me if it's still like that a year from now, like I'm going to, I'm going to hate myself. So, but, (laughs) but anyway, yeah. So like the, the floors were pretty dirty and the walls were not all painted and they're pretty dingy and the light fixtures were an incredible like hodgepodge of fluorescent and different things. And and I mean, it's my dream shop though. It's like, obviously like anybody who likes metal work and wants to run their own business, you just think about, you know, like you just want the space so that you can play in your shop. And I think the machines are, they're expensive, but I, I feel like the machines aren't really that expensive because they hold their value pretty well. And because they produce, they like their, their value is so self-evident. Like what you can do with the machine is like pretty obviously valuable but the space is deceiving. Like a lot of people don't realize like that's one of the, it's like your second biggest cost with a business, I think is the space first biggest being labor. But like, anyway, so I got the shop, I got that figured out. Like this has been like a thing that I've, it's been on my mind like the last 10 years, basically, as long as I've been interested in shop work, I've been interested in solving this problem of like, what's my shop going to be? Where am I going to be? And I would rent somewhere cheap that I could sort of afford, but it was, it didn't really meet my needs. And it was, was never really good enough. You know, it was always like somebody gave me a deal, but then I didn't have an actual lease or anything. So I was always like on the verge of getting kicked out or something. And, and only now in the last two years, have I had semi-legitimate space or, you know, legitimate space. And now this one, it's like, I own it. As long as I keep paying the mortgage, like it feels, it feels pretty amazing. Yeah. Congrats. So what about challenges? Anything that maybe besides obviously renovating and all that, were there any unexpected challenges buying a building? Yeah. Well, I mean, I had no expectations. I didn't, first of all, I didn't really think that it was going to happen. I just went to see this Bridgeport and I was like asking questions about the building and he's a really nice guy, but like, I was like, I don't think I can actually buy this building, but do you mind showing it to me? And he was humoring me. He kept showing me around for like 20 minutes or something. And then that was a Friday afternoon all weekend. I was thinking about it and like, you know, you can't call banks or anything on the weekend, but you know, like I, I told him on Sunday, I texted him and I was like, I want to buy your building. I don't know how yet, but like, please let me buy your building from you. And uh, so then anyway, I called, what was my first call? I think I called the small business development center and I asked them like, how would a small business, like who, who would you put me in contact with? And I was just asking different friends and stuff. Somebody referred me to a, a lender that would, you know, that it was another person who had a small business in town, I guess was my referral for that. And so they, and I just assumed you would want an SBA loan, like a small business administration backed loan. Mm-hmm. And so that was the path that I was going down. And I, it's funny because in your interview with Henry Holsters, what's his name? Henry something. Andrew Henry. <laughs> Andrew Henry. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Great interview. And he was mentioning the whole SBA debacle, which mirrored my experience almost exactly. But it's funny because I think I had already heard him like kind of tell that story. And then I completely forgot about it. And then like six months later, I was buying a building and I made all the same mistakes. But I would say if you're buying something like this, like this had already been a machine shop and it was going to continue to be a machine shop. And the SBA loans 
basically you jump through more hoops and more BS, but what you get is more attractive financing. So like what they were offering me, if I could have gotten it, would have been would have been a 20-year term, four and a quarter percent interest, and 15% down on this purchase, right? And so that's like in the commercial world, that's like, you know, pretty attractive, I think, for especially someone like me who doesn't have like decades of business history. Right. And uh, anyway, there was too many hoops to jump through. They had you do an environmental site assessments. Well, I was gonna say that seems to be the sticking point with everyone. Cause like up until interviewing Brian last week, I had never heard of anybody going through successfully with a property loan through the SBA. Cause there's yep. always a million sticking points. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, and, and I'm, I'm also like <clears throat> really got my, been researching like home buying too. Uh, some, cause like now I own a shop building in town, like I better buy a house, you know, I'm going to be here a little while. And <laughs> so anyway, yeah, like those things like in the residential world, right? Like the, like the appraisal, the inspection, well, the inspection is kind of for you. The appraisal is for the bank, right? And like some of these things are not really for you. They're for the bank. Like the bank wants to know that if you, don't make good on your payments that they still have something that's worth something. So like, that's why they appraise it. Like, I guess it's for you sort of, it's not for you. It's for the bank. Yeah. And so 100%. the phase one environmental inspection, <clears throat> the phase one environmental inspection is the first step toward misery. You don't want to take the phase one environmental inspection It's 2,200 bucks. And basically they just spend like a couple weeks and they, they do all this research. They look into all of the history of the building and of the land and of the adjacent properties. And they go to the site and they ask a bunch of questions and they look around, they do visual inspections. They try to find out if there's underground fuel storage tanks. They, they just do all this poking around. They don't dig, they don't test, they don't sample the soil or the water or anything, but they just look around and it costs you 2,200 bucks and it's an 850 page PDF that they'll send you. And it tells you about all the adjacent businesses in the area and all of the dry cleaners are like some of the worst offenders. Uh, some of the, I forget the name of the chemical, but like, it's really bad. It leaches into the groundwater, it contaminates like blocks around a dry cleaner. So if you're looking at buying a building that's even adjacent to that, like that'll be part of the document or like even one of them, it had all the records of the adjacent businesses that had spills. One of them was a bank. And like, how the hell did a bank make an environmental, you know, spill? Well, <laughs> yeah, they what did a, they spill? They had a fuel oil tank for heating, right? And so oh. it was an underground UST or whatever, underground storage tank. Anyway, L-U-S-T leaking underground storage tank, but something like that. So anyway, <laughs> it's like anybody can be an environmental offender. And like people have been living in this part of this city for, you know, like, like developed, you know, colonized, whatever since like, you know, 1850s or earlier. So like, there's just a lot of history and I'm like, I'm adjacent to a railroad. Basically my feeling after going through this to make a long story a little bit shorter is that the, the, the SBA loan has too many hurdles and I wouldn't advise it to most people. I could have said that a lot faster. Don't do it because, because the, <laughs> the reality is that it's not that much more attractive of financing, not in my case. And the hoops are brutal because what happened was we did the phase one and they said because it had been a machine shop and one or two other things oh because they saw oil stains on the concrete floor and because there was a chunk of concrete that had been dug out and refilled because of these three things they said we we must go to phase two and phase two is eight thousand dollars and phase two is just where they do core samples of the earth through the, they drill three inch diameter holes in the concrete floor 
and they do core samples of the earth and then they analyze that. That costs you $8,000. So then at the end of a phase two, they tell you either the soil is contaminated or it's not. If it's not contaminated, then cool, the bank will probably give you the financing. But if it is contaminated at all, now you need to spend even more money to make a remediation plan. So basically it's like at every step along this ESA, environmental site, site assessment thing, it's basically like you pay a bunch of money to these gangsters and you have no idea whether or not that's the end of it. And then like they take your money and then they say, yeah, give us some more money. So you give them more money. And then they say, yeah, give us, some. it's like you have no right. promises for where it ends. It's just, it's insane. And it's not like it's, it's, it's total insanity because you pay that cash up front and that's money you don't get back. It's not like you only have to pay it if you buy. So I would, I would recommend, and, and the story is that after like 60 of our 90 days on the purchase agreement, just getting pissed away by this kind of stuff, we switched to a private bank and they closed the deal in like 12 days. It was really easy to deal with almost the same loan terms. Like right. don't, don't do an SBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really, from everybody I've talked to, it seems like unless you are dead set about getting a property and using the SBA and have like 20 grand to kill on top of, your yeah. down payment, no don't way. even bother with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I feel like I'm <laughs> talking a lot about these details that don't matter. But the point is, yeah, it was, I wish that I knew maybe to avoid that. So yeah, just, just don't get an SBA loan unless you really know what you're doing and you're sure. But I didn't know what I was doing and people were just suggesting that like, oh, it'll be worth, like it's more hoops to jump through, but it'll be worth it. But I don't think it was. So yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Well, and, what, and, oh, yes, go for it. Sorry. No, go for it. Well, I was just going to say it, it, I feel like it emphasizes the importance of like good banking relationships and same thing with like insurance and anybody else that you deal with, you know, like good vendors for material supply or anodize or anything. It's just like when you, when you find the right one, they're not all the same, you know, some anodizers are good and some suck and like yeah. some bankers are really, they're there to like help you and they, they see something in you and they want to fight for you and other ones they just say, ah, screw off, you know, like, and, and so anyway, it's worth, like, I think that's the moral of the story for me is that this other bank, they had somebody who wanted to make a deal happen and they got it done and it meant all the world to me. Well, and, and real quick, before we get into questions, what's so strange is I've talked to quite a few people who have like just general SBA loans and everyone I've talked to about those have said they are the easiest loan to get for just a bunch of cash. And like they yeah. do very little homework on that kind of stuff. But like the second properties involved, it's like, well, OK, we got to we got to line our coffers with your money. Yeah, it's wild, man. So from the Patreon, we had a few comments more than questions. Uh, David Ron said doesn't have a question, but just want to give you a serious thanks for sharing so much and being a paragon of positivity. I couldn't Thank agree you. more. And then Nick at uh, P3D said, tell us about your dog and post more puppy pictures. And actually, uh, Pete, Pete, Pete Oxenham had asked for shop dog training tips. So a uh, little story about her. I know she's not machining related, but she's the light of my life. I adopted <laughs> her three and a half years ago, something like that. I think she's probably seven or eight right now. She is a mountain cur mix. So if you wanted to competitively hunt squirrels, you would get a squirrel treeing dog and she is apparently a breed that's very, very good. And you can see it when you take her for a walk, she goes bananas over like squirrels and rabbits and cats. It's totally annoying. But <laughs> anyway, she's a sweetheart. She's not really that well-trained. See, the thing is like indoors, she's super docile and chill. And then outdoors, she's really got bad leash manners and she's kind of uh, she's kind of a handful, but 
yeah, she just happens to be pretty good around the shop. It's just like whenever UPS or anybody knocks on the door, she like goes bananas about it, which is, I'm not very good at dog training. Don't take, <laughs> don't take dog training <laughs> advice from me. I'm the so, one that all the people who know how to actually train their dogs, they give me dirty looks because I'm not doing it well enough. What about precautions? Cause like, I, I know, you know, I don't have a dog right now, but in the future, I, the thing that I would you know worry about is all of the, the chips and the coolant and, you know, all the stuff that is like very much bad for animals. Yeah. So I was worried about some of those things. And when I got her the, the machine I had the Bridgeport torque cut, Oh my God, the spindle on that machine at 6,500 RPMs is just ear shattering. And I figured she would just like howl and hate the sound of it. She didn't mind the sound, but I was worried about her ears. I bought these little like doggy earmuffs. Like, like it was marketed toward people who take their dogs in a airplane, you know, like a little, uh, single engine plane or something, mm-hmm. but th- she wouldn't keep those on for more than a couple minutes. She would shake those off. As far as like the coolant and stuff, she has no interest in drinking the coolant. I used to be a little bit more careful around that with her, but like, she's not trying to drink it. It's not like, um, ethylene glycol in your car coolant that tastes sweet. Like there's no reason that a dog, at least my dog, she's not interested in drinking coolant. Thankfully. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as chips go, I mean, First of all, I mean, dogs walk barefoot everywhere all the time. They're like not particularly fussy about like, you know, like when I walk barefoot outside, I'm a freaking baby about it, but like, she's pretty tough. And when it comes to chips in the machine shop with my tender little paws, I touch chips all the time and they generally don't really bother me or cut me that much. It's depends on what you do. Right. But like, we try to keep the shop pretty clean. The, the stuff that's on the, like aluminum, like 60, 61 chips are usually just not that pokey or sharp. It's like, if I'm cutting, you know, if you're doing like little tiny chips and stainless or something, sometimes those can be a real a total bear. And, you know, so I, I try to keep the shop clean enough. And uh, if there's like a lot of chips in an area and she's around, then I'll, I'll tell her not to be there or I'll sweep up. But yeah, I mean, it really hasn't been that much of an issue. And I don't remember once her having like a little thing stuck in her paw or getting into any sort of trouble. And the machine shop is not nearly as loud since I passed that machine along to my buddy, Austin. (laughs) Well, good. Let's see. Nick's other comment was he really appreciates your sense of humor and naming conventions, your tungsten holder, the VFS, you know, I'll add in the miter daddy, all that stuff. I I appreciate it as well. It's, It's definitely good stuff. I got the, the VF ASS, which is where you take the VF four logo, the VF four SS, and then you use electrical tape or gaff tape or something. And you, you change the four to an a, right. I got that from my buddy, Alan Varco. He was, uh, he's, so he's a friend of mine and he's been really helpful to me over the years, but he's, he's been a machinist programmer in like a billion different shops. Cause he, his wife's a veterinarian. So he just moves around every couple of years. Cause she's like doing this and that for her, for her career. And so he moves around and I feel like if you work in shops and you just keep moving shops, like you can't, if you had some really stupid ideas and you worked at the same shop forever, maybe nobody would notice or call you on it. But like, if you're the new guy in all these shops year after year, people are going to let you know if you have some really, you know, like if you're drilling at like a third of the feed rate that you could be drilling or something. And so anyway, when I was getting into machining, I would ask him, you know, for feed rate suggestions and and different machining questions all the time. And he was so helpful to me. And I owe a lot of my, like knowing how to program, especially speeds and feeds and and that sort of stuff. I know I owe a lot of that to him, but he said the, the night shift at the one shop he was working at, they, they did that to the VF4 the one day and he came in in the morning and it said VFASS and he's like, 
good work guys <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to do that on mine let's see next up we had a few questions about lathe stuff teddy tab four asked about vdi 30 tool management on his storm lathe yeah. quick change is sweet but efficiency efficiently managing standard tools and stored offsets is challenging for him he also has a vdi 30 tool lathe yeah. So we mentioned this a little bit, I think, in the last podcast, but VDI 30 is not the paragon. It's not like the pinnacle of lathe tool holder types. And and I get that, but it actually is pretty sweet. And VDI 40 would be the same idea, I guess, because like it makes face contact and there's a dowel pin for rotation and whatever. But what's so good about it for static tools is that it's the poor man's Capto, right? So like Capto is quick change, highly repeatable tool holders and they cost like a billion dollars and VDI 30, you can buy used tool holders on eBay for like 60 bucks or something. They're like pretty cheap and, and they mostly are repeatable enough. You know, you might, you, you know, you might bump the offset just, you know, hair, but like it, it's pretty repeatable. And so I have an abundance of them and I have a rack. And so the issue is that with my lathe, I only have 16 work offsets. It's a Fanuc OT control on my 1996 Clousing Storm 100A lathe. And it's got 12 turret positions, which is the way that the turret works is kind of annoying because whatever. But anyway, so I have 16 tool offsets. And like, for instance, my bar puller uses offset 14. And so sometimes, depending on the drills and the different tools I have on my turret, I'll, I'll program the bar puller as like T0314. So I put it in position three and then it uses offset 14. But mm -hmm. other times I have like a drill that would collide with my three jaw chuck or something. And so I have to like get creative and then I'll put it in pocket number five or pocket number seven or something. And then in the program, either in fusion or I just edit it manually. But like when it calls up the bar puller, I'll have it instead of T0314, it's T0514 or T0714. And so it references the same offset, but it's in a different physical position and you know, the way that I prove programs on the lathe is a little bit different than I, how I do it on the mill. But on the lathe, I just, you know, anything that's sketchy at all, I single block it and I go slow feeds and, and it, it works pretty good. It, but the issue is I only have 16 offsets. So if I had like, like on the Haas, I have 200 offsets and I use those. I mean, I'm only up to like 60 or something by now, but I'm going to use all 200 of those someday. And it, it's pretty amazing. But on the lathe, I only have 16. So so sometimes you got to touch off, you know, something for Z again, but it, it's not that bad. And the way that I run that machine is that the face of the three jaw chuck is always Z zero. So I use like a, I have that lathe set up in metric. And so if I'm drilling, for instance, and I have a new drill, I load the drill into like a collet holder or something. And then I, I jog it into position. I have a 10 millimeter dowel pin and I just put the, the drill and the, the dowel pin up to the chuck and I jog it until it just touches. I don't have a tool setter. And then, you know, I, you, so you can establish those pretty quickly, but for the ones that I repeat use like that bar puller, I just, I keep the offset saved. And then because it, I just, I feel like VDI 30 and VDI 40 is this hack for quick change because I think I've never used a lathe with bolt on tooling, but it looks like you couldn't just take it off and put it back on quite as slick. And that's why I refer to the VDI 30 as like the poor man's cap though. Right. Okay. I think that's a great way to, Phrase it. Robertson Machine Works asks, why are hydraulics pump hydraulic pumps so loud? Rhetorical question because he was watching one of your stories and noticed his lathe makes the exact same constant whining noise. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. It's it's annoying. The that little lathe that I have, it I bought it for two thousand dollars, which is a really good deal. But like you can buy used two axis lathes under ten thousand dollars all the time. But but anyway, yeah, it's it, it got a good deal on it and it's great and it makes good parts and it really don't have that many bad things to say about it, but I wish it was quieter and it's the whine of the hydraulic pump is the loudest. And I was in last spring. I got to visit the Akluma shop. I got to visit Jeff, which was so cool. Love Jeff. And he's got he's got that that Doosan Lynx subspindle live tool lathe. And he had it turned on and it was just sitting there. And I was like, oh yeah, so like a hydraulic pump must not be turned on. He's like, no, it's it's like the lathe's on. And I was like, you're kidding. <laughs> like oh. it was so quiet. <laughs> and in town here, there's a dynamic machine is like the, the Doosan dealer. And those guys, they pay me a visit pretty often. The, the sales guy, Ryan comes by and he gives my dog, he just, he like opens the door and he's got a big bone and he gives her a bone and she loves him. And one of these days I'm going to get a, a new Doosan. It'll probably be a year or two at this point. Cause I feel like I just don't need it that bad. Like this little lathe is working for me, but, but yeah, it's annoying how loud it is. And actually a little shout out to anybody who doesn't follow on Instagram. I don't know how you'd say it. Cappy Cor- Ca- Capo Coriola, jeez, I can't say it. Cory, who is Capo Cory something. You know who I'm talking about? I don't. I was just about to look. Let me look it up. I'm butchering his name because it's not like a name that you would say. Cory. Capo Coriolo. Yes, that's him. Cory Terry Ogio. Terry. Oh, I'm sorry, Cory. Terry. <laughs> anyway, so I've been, I've been like following him on Instagram for years and years. And uh, he's a little more old school than me. And, you know, he's hand scraping his his old manual machines. I mean, he's like a true machine builder, incredibly talented guy. And I remember I asked him for career advice like five years ago or something. And I, I believe he, I want to say he told me something like he just got lucky where he got hired. I think he has a mechanical engineer degree, but he, oh, how's this related? Ah, geez. How's this related to what we were talking about? I'm losing my train. Loud. Oh, I asked him about hydraulic pumps because he's so, he's so adept to like machine building and stuff. And I wanted to ask him if I wanted to replace the hydraulic power unit on my lathe, you know, and then I started asking him questions and he was giving me suggestions and he was pointing out that sometimes, you know, it's just a dirty filter or something is making it louder. And I was like, that's, I would never have suspected that. But yeah, he's, he's a really talented person who I've learned a lot from over the years. You know, there's the Rob Renzetti's and the Tom Lipton's, but then there's just so many people that you learn stuff from by following along. And he, he does a lot with machine tool building. It's really cool. That's great. Yeah. Well, you kind of touched on it, but maybe this will lead into that question. Molly No asked, what's the next big tool for the shop? And then also he wanted us to talk about your saw. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was going to recap the year a little bit in terms of machine tool purchases. So maybe I'll do that for a second. So we bought that. I hired Zach. We released the frame fixture. I bought the fiber laser. Then in, I think, March, I bought a 1996 Klausing or Clausing. I say Clausing. <laughs> Somebody was teasing me about that, but it's a C12AX. So it's, it's an automatic feeding horizontal bandsaw, and it is almost an exact bolt-for-bolt ripoff of an Amada HA250. And so if you watch the YouTube channel, Watch Wes Work, it used to be... I forget the guy's name. It used to be a different name, but it's this guy who has, he used to like four or five years ago, he had a bunch of CNC related videos and like machining related videos. And more recently he's switched toward like automotive repair videos and he doesn't really talk about machining much anymore, but he had some really good videos. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Mm -mm, No. He had some really good ones. He had an old Morisiki SL25 and he showed 
making some parts on that. And he had different machines and he's done machine moving and he's done a lot of machine repairs. He talks about like fixing old CRT monitors and uh, circuit board diagnosis and stuff. Uh, Wes, he's, I can't remember his last name now, but anyway, he's in like Illinois or something. Very, very talented. I like watching his automotive repair videos too. And he showed his old Amada HA250 and I'm like, this is a brilliant saw. I need one of these. And then I learned that there's other knockoffs, including the one I have. It's actually made by Cozen. I think it's like an AH-13 or something like that. But but they make a one that's branded for Klausing. And so I have that one. It's from 1996. Klausing is just down the road from me and they offer service for it, and like manuals and parts and stuff. So that's helpful. And so I bought the machine for $3,000 at HGR Industrial. It's totally awesome. It's an auto-feeding band, bandsaw, which allows you to for someone like me, repeat cut stuff at 90 degrees. It's totally rigid and it's ridiculously accurate on cut length. And I really like it. I had to fix a bunch of stuff on it when I bought it, but it's a, it's a really, really good saw. And I feel like the, the reason that you get a saw like that in your shop isn't just to save money on the saw charge. It's so that you're like dynamic and flexible and you can solve your own problems on a faster lead time that you can shop around with a wide, wider range of vendors, not just the ones who auto saw for you. But it also does save you money for sure. So, yeah, I'm very jealous. Like I, I could maybe squeeze one into the bay <laughs> and I shop, but man, there's been some. Like we've got one of those chop saws, the metal devil chop saws that I use for aluminum, and it's like great yeah. when I have to do two cuts. Yeah, or like I'm chopping up like carve smart jaws or something. I'm like, great, this this works fine. But like, there have been a few times where buying cut stock just wasn't viable but it's still like 60 cuts on that thing. I'm like, oh, a bandsaw would be so nice. Yeah, we used to get aluminum always cut to length and uh, Shupan is our local distributor for most of the aluminum. And then Alro is our local distributor for most of the stainless steel. And when you wanted to get from, at least last time I checked, when you wanted to get like a two and an eighth, 17.4 round bar sawn, it was like $6 a cut. It was insane. And like aluminum from them and from this other supplier, it was like, you almost didn't even notice the cut charge. It was pretty cheap, but like $6 a cut. I need like 20 pieces. Like this is insane. And so I had one of those, uh, the DeWalt DW872, same idea, 14 inch carbide blade. And you like, those are made for cutting tube. Maybe you can cut aluminum. You can cut like stainless bar stock, but like you just get terrible blade life. And like once the blade life starts to go, then it really cuts poorly. Yep. And I just remember like the first couple months there, like my employee would do the sawing for me and he would just be, we never built a saw station. So he's like kneeling on the floor in a hot pile of chips. And it was just, I just kept apologizing to him. I'm like, one of these days we're going to get, we're going to get the auto saw. I know we're going to, and yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been tremendously good. And that thing can cut a 13 inch round. Like the biggest I've done is a five by five aluminum block, but it's, it's a pretty amazing saw. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think the we've been having to saw a lot of titanium and i think that that's been the worst is like i have to like find time on other people's band saws because i have tried once on that metal devil to cut titanium and destroyed yeah. the blade in three cuts and i was like well that was yep. cool i guess that was a hundred dollar lesson cool 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 <laughs> yeah i hate those saws they're so good like if if all you ever had was nothing else or like a friction cutting saw and what you're trying to do is cut mild steel square tube. They're pretty good, but they're very noisy. 
which gets old fast and they're very messy and they throw hot chips everywhere. And then they don't even work that well for solid bar. And I had bought the DeWalt one and I had bought that Saunders machine workspace. And I just hated every minute of that project that the whole, the saw and the base and just, it just didn't work for what I was trying to do. It would only work for like light prototyping, but like I was trying, I, I just had this idea in my head that I could run a machine shop with that. And that was not the case at all. It was very, very bad choice of, cause I used to have like an old jet seven by 14 horizontal bandsaw, which was honestly kind of, of a better fit for what I did. But anyway. Yeah. Well, then that gets into his other question, which is what do you think your next big tool is? You, you kind of said earlier that you think you have everything you need, but yeah. is there anything else you're looking at? No, I think that's kind of it. I think I had an experience this last year. You know, I've been growing and growing and growing and, and I, I just feel like I want to cool it for a while with like, you know, I bought the building, I bought the VMC. Maybe I'll buy, probably the next thing would be a lathe, but like, I don't need that anytime soon. And I didn't mention, but like, you know, getting a forklift last spring was pretty amazing. And, you know, like I think a, a coolant vacuum, like a Freddy or something, or, or possibly even shop building one. Although I know, you know, you got to value your time. You shouldn't do that kind of stuff. So I'm like, I always like very careful about that kind of thing, but it's possible. Maybe we'll, you know, repurpose an old air compressor tank and some other components, but but anyway, like a coolant vacuum is maybe one that I would buy, but I think it'll be probably another year or two before I buy another CNC, but we'll just see, you know, like maybe I'll have a product idea that just needs more volume or that would be a perfect candidate for a subspindle live to a lathe. But lately I just feel like, you know, the VMC with a fourth axis rotary and then like, like a 20 year old two axis lathe is the perfect combination for what I do. Like the lathe is low overhead it's very, very capable. And then I design my own parts and I have a lot of flexibility there. So I just design within the limitations of my shop. And like, I just love the idea of a subspindle live tool lathe, but I, I just, at the quantities that we do and for the incredible cost of those machines, like they would literally cost almost a hundred times as much as my little lathe cost me to buy a new one. And I just don't think that the ROI is there because we do such a, small volume of everything, you know, like maybe we do a couple hundred pieces on the most, you know, the highest run quantity and it just doesn't add up, you know, like the amount of time that it takes to load, you know, get both chucks set up and get the program loaded and like set your work shifts and set all your tooling and dialing in the offsets. And I want to, I want to get a clearer picture of exactly how long those setup setups typically take, but I just, I can't see that really paying off for my kind of workflow. But what does work is like a cheap machine that you don't, you don't owe it anything and it makes good parts and you produce parts that are finished in one or two lathe operations. And then you load them into a fourth axis fixture that can hold like, you know, 16 at once or eight of them at once. And then you put in any milled features you need in a batch. And because it's fourth axis, you can hit both ends of the cylinder and you can hit the side all at once. That's just been a really winning combination for what I do. Yeah, it sure seems like, let's see another question from Ben at Fort manufacturing. Uh, he, wanted to i think hear our advice on going full-time he's going full-time at his shop yeah on i April wanted to and i wanted to sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there i wanted no, no, to follow up with you because that was a thing i was hassling you last time i was on i was like you got to do it jump off the cliff man so so fort manufacturing he said he was going full-time on april 1st mm -hmm. not a joke either <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He said April 1st. So yeah, he just wanted to hear kind of our advice on that. 
Yeah. Well, I've been yapping the whole damn time. So how about you talk some about how it's gone for you going full time? It's been amazing. Uh, like it, it definitely was scary at first. And, and actually I was chatting with Ben over DM when he sent that in, you know, it, it is kind of like leaping off the edge and building your parachute on the way down. But like just in November and December of last year, we saw like the sharpest growth in our company history. And it's Hell just a yeah. lot of, yeah, exactly. Well, we, we got the F 600 in September. So it was, it was just like all perfect timing. Like we had more machine capacity, more work capacity. I'm able to like be home and have dinner with my wife and like see her more. I like try to take most Sundays off so that I can actually like be a person and have hobbies again and things like that. It's just been amazing. And then Brad's actually going to join me full time June 1st. So it's going to be even better and we're going to have even more labor hours. That's awesome. Hell yeah. Congratulations on that. Yeah. I think the theme of what I was telling you last time, as I recall, was that I was trying to tiptoe politely around kicking your ass into gear and like <laughs> telling you basically like, you, you know, you've been ready for far long enough. You're never like the thing about going full time or taking a big leap is that like, you're never going to feel ready for the next challenge. And, and, I mean, you, you need to like in life, you need to maintain some safety margin, right? Or else, or else you're just going to become a liability to your friends and family. But like, but uh, anyway, it's like, you're, you're never really going to feel ready for the next thing. And so like, I think part of the lesson is just like getting comfortable with not being totally ready and just taking the leap anyway. And for me, I just, I put myself in a situation. I kind of cheated that whole predicament because first of all, I never had a good job. I never had it that good. So like I wasn't leaving anything and and I had a machine shop job for nine months, which is, I know, not very long. I'm a millennial brat. I guess I can't stand it. But, <laughs> but I, I left that job and I, 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 my plan was to leave that job, take the Saunders Machine Works machining course, buy myself an old CNC lathe, play for a month or two. And then I figured I'd re-enter the job market with a better job prospect. And, and then once I was there, I just never wanted to go back. And I, I, you know, I didn't have kids or a mortgage or anything to be accountable to really. I had a very low cost of living and, and not really any debt. So, so it was pretty easy for me to jump out because I thought I was just going to jump back in again. And I think that was, since I did it, I've taken the whole project massively more seriously. I've had so much more time to do it and it's really clarified, you know, why it's important to like make sure that it works because it's not just like a, oh, that'd be cool to do one day. Right. Well, yeah, and actually you kind of touched on it, but that was something that was unexpected about going full time for me was that there were many more. Actually, this can lead us into our next question, but there are many more shop improvements that I came up with the second I started going full time, because when I was only working there part time, full time, you know, I was in such a rush to get everything done so that I could like sleep three hours or like, you know, do something like that. that like I never had the time to really like analyze oh, this, this doesn't make any sense for our workflow or, oh, we really need this because like I'm always looking for it. And so now like there's been a lot of improvements and things that we bought and just things we've redone because I got sick and tired of it, you know, now that it's my only place. But, and, you know, for Ben, the nice thing is if you have a skill and clearly do, you're going full time. The nice thing about this time currently for everybody is like if, if you want to, try this and it doesn't work out worst absolute worst case you got to find another job it is really easy to find a job if you're skilled right now 
Yeah. Like I, I know f- for a fact, if everything went to hell in a handbasket for me, I could be hired next week at some yeah. place and be making good, you know, decent money because there's yeah. no good labor out there. So, yeah. You know. And sort of unique to you, you made me think of this, like your people network. I don't know what it was like before you started doing the podcast, but I'm sure that your people network right now is insane. And like all of the people who, you know, through having done this podcast and all of the listeners, they would like, if you needed a job and you admitted it publicly, you would have like a thousand people being like, Oh, move to this city or like, Oh, I know one that's in your area. And And so that's cool for you. But then also to anyone else listening, I would say in my own life, I was never that good at networking. And in the last, you know, well, I guess it's been sort of a gradient. Now I'm 32, but like, but in the last, you know, five, 10 years here, I've gotten slowly a little bit better at networking. And I feel like now I have a pretty incredible network of people. Like I've done my own podcast with 50 or 60 or some episodes and, and just like getting to know all of those guests and all of my customers through my business and the face that I have on my Instagram and like, it's just really, really powerful because like you'll think of a problem, you know, and then you'll think of like, I think I know somebody who could help me with this and you ask them a question. And so anyway, apart from the, the discussion of going full time, I would just recommend to people like really like focus on networking if you don't, because it's it's truly valuable, like to, to just know who to ask when you have a problem. Yeah, I, I could not agree more, actually. I, I think it's it started because I have the podcast but like i am now in many different group chats with a bunch of machinists or like have weekly or bi-weekly calls with a bunch of other you know friends and machinists and like i find that so helpful because you know there's always somebody that can turn to to be like hey you know i have got like my brother guy guys that i can like talk to and be like hey have you seen this alarm or like i've got the guys that i know process super hard parts i'm like hey i'm pulling my hair out can i you know pick your brain or you know like you've got an employee, but I'm sure it still gets lonely being a, like a business owner. Like it's nice to just have somebody to be like, Hey man, this is what I'm struggling this week. And just have like, you know, a shoulder to cry on really like, and just be like, yeah. man, this really sucked this week. Like how, how, how's your week been kind of thing. So yeah, I, I would agree. Like just reach out to people and just be like, Hey, can we have a call? Like, can we yeah. talk? Also, I don't know about the demographic that listens to this show might be a little bit different than the average, but I have to imagine a lot of the listeners are millennials, not all of us, but probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast are a decent number. And people in my generation don't really like talking on the phone that much. And I got to say the phone call is a boss move. You got to get on the phone. It's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) It's so good. Not all the time, not for everything, but like, it, I just feel like it just feels good to like pull out the phone and call your representative at your branch of your bank. And like, you're not talking to a 1-800 number. You're not stuck on some website. Like you have a person and they know you and like you can talk through the problem and then they help you and it's done. Or you talk to somebody in the industry who's like helpful to you or like my customers. A lot of times when somebody's a good sales prospect and they ask me a question about something, I'll respond in the email that they sent me. But then I'll also offer my phone number and I'll say, you know, like, if you prefer, we can do it on the phone and half the time they call me and that can go really well, too. And I just think like uh, if you're averse to the phone call, I got to recommend like trying to break that aversion a little bit. It's it's a really powerful thing. I think I talked to you once or twice on the phone in the last year or two, you know, off air, but like just different industry contacts that I have. It's just it's a really value. It's like a different kind of communication. I think it's more powerful than, you know, the DMs and emails and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. 
So jumping back, you had highlighted this question. I definitely want to go into it. Uh, TDC Manufacturing asked, what's been your favorite shop improvement? The one that makes you say, why do we wait so long to implement this? Okay, so the reason I highlighted that was I was like, I got to remember to think about that one. So I have an answer. That's such a good question. And yet it didn't make me think of any one thing that's totally obvious. So let me just try and spitball something that seems kind of semi-useful here. Shop improvement. One of them was, you know, what's laughable is I have my employee does a lot of shipping for me. And through ShipStation, we have a web store with Squarespace and I hate it. Don't get a Squarespace web store. It's so limiting. But anyway... <laughs> We need to switch it over to like WooCommerce or, or Shopify or something. Just the way to just ship quoting is abysmally bad, in my opinion. But anyway, on ShipStation, for like six months or more, like eight months that he was working for me, we would get an order and then he would package it and then he would text me or email me from across the shop what the ship weight was. And then I would create the postage and then I would email him a PDF. And I knew how ridiculous this was, but I just kept doing it. Cause like I didn't have two logins on ShipStation, And then finally I was like, I looked into it and it's like, Oh, it's only $5 more a month to get a second login for this software. <laughs> <laughs> and now like he like ships something like, like at least once every day, but like that was such a quality of life improvement to get him his own. And now like he sees when the orders come in through the web store and he just boxes. And like a lot of times he doesn't ask me a single question about an order and it goes out correctly. And if he has like a technical, you know, like shipping is complicated, but like if he has a technical question about how we should package something or whatever, then he does. But otherwise it just goes out and he packages it really beautifully. And it's that sort of thing that I think is what the question is getting at. Like those things where you didn't realize it was so easy and you just, you just kind of kept like kicking it down the road. And then, you, yeah, like, why did I wait? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't know that I have any like big ones that are like, Oh, this was mind blowing. But like you said, it's like been a, a lot of little things like we, I think trading out anything, any kind of storage or horizontal surface that doesn't work for you for something that works. Like oh, we had nice. this giant, like four by eight table that my dad had built. It was in his garage for the longest time. And then when I got the shop, like he was getting rid of it. So we, of course, grabbed it because we just were trying to fill an empty shop and we yeah. like kept it for what five years now and finally like when we got the new machine in and reorganized the shop it was just kind of sitting off to the side and taking up a bunch of room and like one day i was like this is stupid and i just bought another one of those like costco five shelf things to fill its place and took it apart and you know gave my dad back the lumber yeah and like that was amazing like we got so much more floor space back and more usable space we like bought a decent size like i think it's six or eight foot desk so that brad and i each have our own like desk space because we built him a computer and you know now he's got his own area and i've got my own area there's lots of little like organizational things that are are like it's super cliche to say but like fix what bugs you it was like so much little stuff that we had just sat on for so long we're like this is good enough this is good enough and then like i said once once i went full time i like saw this stuff and i was like this sucks i'm changing this right now like even if it means that the shop's a mess for a while like i need to go through all of this that's a good yeah that's a good way to put it fix what bugs you or i think the pearson pearson work holding about he was talking about lean improvements and he said what sucks around here and just like you know fixing the things that totally (laughs) suck that nobody wants to do one thing that that question makes me think of is just we kept talking for a long time, me and my employee, like, oh yeah, you know, like I did show him how to run the 3D printer, but like he's just, he's had fusion and he's been like pretty novice with it for a long time. And only recently did he actually 
take his own fusion design, export it to STL, Ultimake Acura, put it on the printer, make a part. And then like once that happened, it started to happen more quickly now where we have a lot of like assemblies where you have like a press fit of a dowel pin or something like that. And we have a little Arbor press. And so you made little 3D printed things that hold a magnet and they hold the pin and you just like it's an assembly tool. And like once he got started on that, it's been moving. And so, you know, I'm really happy that he's taken that on. And I guess, you know, it's like I I just kind of in hindsight, maybe I should have prioritized getting him up to speed a little bit sooner on on that because it really wouldn't have taken much to get him on that the first month that he was working for me. Mm -hmm. And then he could have been making and like lately he's been doing more of that. And that kind of leads into one of the things I was going to say, which is that since I moved into this new shop, I think it's been a good sort of reset button on like the way that we run the shop and sort of shop culture and stuff, because it was such a crazy stretch. I think it was the most stressful and like difficult thing that I've ever done, like buying this building. And then we closed on it December 15th and I would work like a sort of short day in the actual shop. And then I would go after hours, like my employee, first of all, he was in charge of like shipping everything every day. So in like keeping the shop running and keeping the parts flowing through the mill and stuff, being there for UPS deliveries and stuff. So I wanted him to stay there and keep that stuff moving. And then I didn't have workers comp or anything at the new building and I was doing demolition. So I, I kind of just felt like I should maybe do that work myself. And so anyway, I was working like 60, 70, 80 hours a week and I was doing like machine shop renovations at the new building every night and all the weekends while he was, you know, keeping the shop going and it was kind of nutty and, and it's just been like stressful and like financially taxing. You got to put like 20% down on this building. That's really expensive. It's insane. And then like all the, you know, like we bought a scissor lift and I do not regret that for a second, but like, that's expensive, you know, and like all these expenses that go like getting the walls painted and the, we got epoxy coating on the floors. I was able to roll that into the financing for the building, thankfully, but like still oh, had, nice. to pay, had to pay 20% down. It was like, I think we got a pretty smoking deal on the floor epoxy work. It was like 9,600 bucks, but it was still like, that's a ton of money it just for the square footage. I think it's a decent deal, but like, uh, the guy did pretty good work. If I really wanted it to be impeccable, I might be annoyed, but like, it's totally good enough for my machine shop. So. Right. Did you get the, the flake in it so that it's not slippery? No, it's got sand broadcast or whatever. It's got like, it's a little inconsistent, but it, it, it has some sand grit to it. It's like definitely not too slippery unless you have something to slip on. I, I think it's acceptable for what I'm doing okay. and it makes the shop look very good. And we've dropped some stuff, of course, and like there's a couple little chips, but it's mostly holding up pretty good so far. So we'll just see in another five, 10 years where it's at. But I feel like the if the floors were just nice, clean concrete, I probably would have left them. I'm not so fancy, but like they looked really stained and bad. And there's just like there's just not many middle steps. It's like you can leave it alone or you can epoxy coat it for a ton of money. But there was right. like hardly any middle ground. And I was like, well, if I can finance it, I guess I'll do it. And it's, well, it's, and, and it's awesome. like there's something to be said about just like that cleanliness that comes with epoxy floors. And, and yeah. I think that like an unsung hero of the un- epoxy floor is, is that it reflects so much light, too. So you like get so much more light in your space with that. Yeah. Yeah, it really I mean, even just like sweeping the floor, I noticed in my old shop, which was not epoxy coated, but had really nice six inch concrete that was polished. Well, not like polished, but you know, it had like the whatever. Anyway, it was pretty nice concrete. And even just when we would sweep the shop floor from being like 
a little bit dirty to like actually swept, it was like, it made a noticeable improvement on my mood and like my perception of the value of the space. I was like, wow, it's so much nicer in here. And so like the same thing, like my little scissor lift had a little grease drip out of the one uh, gear reducing thing on the rear drive wheel. And like, so there's like little drips of grease everywhere and it's like driving me nuts. I want to like spend an hour just cleaning grease drips off the floor, but you know, like, <laughs> but anyway, it's just like having a nice clean floor. It's like, it makes a big difference or like in your kitchen, if you just wipe down your counters, it's just like, ah, it just feels good. Yeah, it really does. Well, what else is new? You know, shop news and new things. What else is going new in oh, your business? So, sorry, what I was going to say is that I just feel like through all the stress and the upheaval of like trying to buy this building, what slowly happened is that we did get moved and it kind of sucked, but we got there. And now we are fully moved in. As of the end of February, we moved out of the other space and we started to get more settled. And what's cool about that is that previously my employee kind of showed up and he started working with me. And now he moved in kind of with me and I feel like he has more ownership over the space and he feels like we moved in together. The shop is actually really close to his apartment, which is pretty awesome. It's like a couple blocks away. So lucky him. And I'm like <laughs> a few miles away, which is not bad. And uh, anyway, so like, it's been cool because I just kind of let him take the lead on organizational stuff. I'll tell him like, I think we should put the list as here and here and maybe this. And then he fills in the blanks and he does the rest. And I think it's been kind of a good and necessary kind of reset button. And like lately I'm just trying to impress upon him. Like, you know, we need to pay the bills every month and we need to get the work done. But like, I really want to be forward thinking about building tools and building, you know, like spreadsheets are tools also, but like, you know, just organizing and like creating a workflow so that things just kind of happen. And it's, it's just lean manufacturing. I call it the boomerang system. You imagine on a nice sunny day, you have two overhead doors in my shop building and they're both rolled up so you can enjoy the breeze and the sunlight. And what happens is the material supply truck guy comes up and he stops the truck and he takes a 12 footer of aluminum and he, he boomerangs it into the shop, right? <laughs> he just throws the 12 foot bar into the shop and it flies through the shop, right? And it, it passes through the shop. It goes through the auto saw and then it goes into the mill and it comes out of the mill and it goes into a box. It goes to anodize and it goes back and it's still spinning though. And it goes and it lands in some brown boxes and it gets taped up all nice. And then it just flies out the other door. And then the UPS guy catches it and he says, thanks guys. And then he leaves. So this is like the ideal. And we work backwards from the ideal. And so really it's just lean manufacturing, I think. But the idea is what if everything was so frictionless that it kind of felt like that? It kind of felt like the material came in and the packages came out and everything on the like in between just kind of happened, right? And it's never going to be really like that, but like, that's kind of our benchmark. So I call it the boomerang system. I think it's more fun than lean manufacturing. I like it. Uh, it's a very, very good visual for sure. And I like yeah. the sound effects. That'll be great for podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what about the fork fixture? What's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, we have different tools and some of them are like a multi-part assembly like this one is. So if you have a bicycle and you have the front forks for your front wheel. So anyway, d just different like fixtures for welding and mitering and stuff. This one is an assembly. It's not as complicated as some of the other ones. Back in November, I went to a trade show in Philadelphia and I, I decided that I should make this tool. Th there are some other like competitors of ours who make these and uh, and they do okay and they do fine but i just felt like first of all if i made one i knew i would sell it to my customers so i guess i have you know <laughs> that incentive and also i just had some different ideas about how to do it and i knew that i knew i could do it well and so anyway i just i wanted to make it and and also like 
in the scheme of like in the when i look at different perspective projects to take on some of them are very complicated and this one seemed like a little bit more approachable so so i was working on that and that one's getting closer to being finished and it's it's just exciting for me i think i really came up with some good ideas to solve some problems like one of them is we have like a t-slot on this thing with a t-nut and uh you draw the the fastener tight, right? And so you have like sort of planar contact between these two planes with a T-slot in the middle and registered in that T-slot, the the piece on the face of it has like a key. Well, you can't have that so tight that it binds, you know, you can't like there's, when you loosen the the fastener, your, your piece that slides along a T-slot, it's going to have just a little bit of jiggle. It's kind of like unavoidable. And I had this really clever idea the other day because I didn't want it to be able to spin. Like the planar contact is pretty good but I didn't want it to be able to spin at that joint. And I realized that if I actually manufactured the T-nut, which I already make out of aluminum and I bottom out a M8 stud into it, if I actually make it so that rather than like fastening <laughs> like a 90 degree angle between the, the broad surface of the T-nut and the stud, if I actually use my fourth axis and I drill and tap that at like a 20 degree angle, then when I tighten the whole assembly, it kind of wedges the, it almost becomes a V block. Like you have mostly the forces drawn planar between these two planes, and then you have a key and it's kind of drawn into the corner of this V. And so anyway, it's freaking awesome. And it really solves a problem on this tool. And I see a bunch of applications for it in other tools. I've never really seen anybody else do this, although I'm sure some engineer has done this at some point in history, but I think it's really clever. And because I already use the fourth axis for everything, sure, I can tip it 20 degrees to drill and tap another feature. And so, yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool detail. I, I just, I can't like something I've said a bunch of times about the VMC is that like, you know, probing is cute and 12,000 RPM is cute and all these things are nice, but fourth axis is where you really make your money. And I think for someone like me, I will say the probing is, is pretty important these days, but yeah, like fourth axis is just, I, for what I do, it's like fifth axis would only be 10% more useful and it would cost so much more money. And uh, yeah, fourth axis is pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just starting to explore that and I'm really starting to enjoy it. I've got that laying plate on there now and I need to build a little trunnion shelf for it for my for a vice or something. But man, I'm really, really enjoying it for sure. Yeah, and I'll make a plug here for anybody who doesn't follow me or know about how awesome the Pearson Rotovice is. I have a Pearson Palette and that's a great tool. It's an exceptionally good tool, especially for the price compared to the other options, you know, like for a quick change system like that. It's really cool. I don't use mine that much at the volumes that I'm at. It just doesn't always make sense to make a palette, let alone like a pair of matching palettes for something, especially because it's three axis. And, and so, and like the vacuum system, I think probably is a better sell. And if you follow Jay Pearson's YouTube channel, he doesn't talk that much about his Rotovice. He has like one or two videos dedicated to it. Almost all of his videos are about vacuums and about the Pearson palette system. But in my opinion, the Rotovice is far and away the best tool he makes. It's amazing. You get four fourth axis vices for $3,000 or whatever it is. It's freaking awesome. It, I use it for so many jobs. I had one I bought one where it didn't have the rock lock studs built into the base plate. So I made my own adapter base plate out of aluminum so that I could quick change it on like my, I have a Haas HRT 210 or HRC 210. And so I have the rock lock 96 millimeter pallet base. And then I, I made an adapter so I could put that rotovice on there. But I think it's the best fourth axis work holding for 
I mean, it depends what you're doing, certainly. But it's I only use it with the serrated gripper jaws, and I think it's it's just really, really good. And he says it's good for stuff that's up to about a three inch cube. And I would say that's pretty accurate, you know, like in order to do bigger stuff, like sometimes you can do shorter things that are longer, but in order to really do bigger stuff, you need to lift it up a couple inches off of the surface of your uh, table or otherwise you have collisions with the table, but it's, it's, yeah, it's so good. I love it. Very cool. And then you also put here machines. So what's new with machines? Oh, I was just going to list off all the ones that I got. So uh, yeah, I mentioned the bandsaw and the laser and I didn't mention the forklift much. I'll just talk about that briefly. I always, I wanted a forklift for years and I didn't have space to put one in. And then, yeah, it was like six or eight months after I moved into that new shop, I finally bought one. And so it's a, I think on the sticker, it's a Toyota from like 2006 or something. So like I, I have all this Toyota jealousy of like people who have like, you know, a yeah, I don't know. Toyota just makes good stuff. I don't, I don't own a Toyota except now I do. I have a forklift. I like my cars are like <laughs> these crappy domestic cars, but I have a, I have a cool Yoda bro forklift. And we, we put uh, my employee one day, he surprised me. We came in, I came in in the morning and he had made a TRD off-road <laughs> vinyl decal for it. <laughs> we had That's joked amazing. about it, but then I came in one morning and he did that. And I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. But yeah, it's just, it's not even, it's so not off-road. It doesn't even have the pneumatic tires, but no, I, I would just want to make a point that like the, the value of a forklift for someone like myself and a lot of shop people is like, you know, you don't have an operator sitting on it all day. So like, it's not really going to make you money necessarily. What it does is it, 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 it decreases the amount of time that you spend on chores that can't make you money so that you can spend more time doing stuff. And like, you know, it, we fire it up like three times a week or something. We don't use it that much except for when we're moving, but it's just like for the little tasks, you know, like once a month it saves our life. And then like, you know, three times a week, it's kind of handy. And it's just, it's, it's the necessity when you get to a certain scale, because like, your time is just so valuable. Like anything you can do to like save and also safety, like to save your back, you know? Yeah. No, I, there's been a few times in the last couple of weeks that I wish I had had one. Like I had material delivered and like, I told the salesman, I was like, let me know when it's going to be here so I can like, you know, have somebody here to help me unload. Cause I don't have a forklift and like package it on small pallets. Well, yep. shocking. They did not tell me when they were going to yep. be there. And so all of a sudden I get a, you know, a ring on our door doorbell and I go outside and there's pallets and I'm like, Hey dude, I'm sorry. You were supposed to let us know when you're going to be here. I'm going to have to hand unload it. And like, he was super cool about it and helped me unload it. But like it sucked. Like it was like, man, this would, would have been really nice to ha- not have to like split these boxes and pull all the material. And, and then I've got a, a new, new to me piece of metrology equipment coming in next week. Awesome. Like I, I had to pay for lift gate service. Cause I was oh, like, I've no. got a pallet jack, but I don't have a, did you get a CMM? No, no. I, so I already have a manual <laughs> CMM, but I've been on the hunt for a long time for a optical comparator. Awesome. And I wanted a very specific brand. I wanted a very specific. I wasn't very specific on the model, but like I wanted a 14 inch OC more or less. And there's a brand called OGP that's out of New York. And they make probably, in my opinion, the best OCs on the market like we had a brand new one at my last day job and even the guy who came to calibrate it yearly was like this is by far the most accurate oc i've ever dealt with like everything off of his scale was within i want to say like a two tenths like every single step and the one we found like 
I have have had like three or four of them on my watch list on eBay for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And I've had a notification for anything that popped up. And then Saturday, one popped up at like 8 p.m. And I looked at it and it was like a third the cost of any of the other ones and Dang. looked brand new. And they said that they were the original owners. And I was like, yep, sold and bought it immediately. And then had to to learn how to schedule an LTL shipment and got yeah. all that done. And it just got picked up today. So that's awesome. I am very excited. It's got like, I think it's 10, 20 and 50 by motorized X and, and Y movements. It's a green LED. I, or I don't know if it's LED, but it's green light, which is the only thing I've seen on. I've only seen it on OGPs. So it's really easy to d- detect edges and it's got built in interior edge detection. So there's not that little arm that comes out and sticks onto the screen. It actually is built into the lens system and yeah, I'm, I'm just super excited. And, and it came with a, a Lista cabinet for it to sit on, too. Damn. Yeah. So I was just like over the moon. And the, the guy who it was a company that sold it out of New York. And like it ended up being their VP of operations that talked with me and was just like super nice and willing to do it. Like I asked him, I was like, hey, can you pull the glass out and put it in a box and put it in the Lista? Like I'm worried about it wow. breaking. He was like, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll have my maintenance guy do it. And like took a bunch of pictures for me before it got picked up and just was like wow. amazing. The, the the whole thing was just such a great experience. And now I'm just hoping that freight goes all right. And yeah, we'll, yeah. It doesn't we'll have see. a bunch of knobs busted off and all that. Yeah. What's the, did you say the make and the model? It's an OGP top bench, I think is the model. So it's got the built-in DRO. It's got, like I said, edge detection, three different powers, I believe. I haven't seen the, it, it has the switch on the side, but I'm not sure if it has all the lenses in it, but they're, they're pretty neat. Like they've got circle finding and you know all the geometric features you'd want and they're just they're pretty epic i'm really excited that's so cool that machine shop job i had they had one and i played with it just a little bit but i haven't i haven't gotten to use one much and that's you know like so that to the question of like oh what's the next big machine and i think you know maybe this is growing up or maybe this is just facing facts but for me it's like i'm not that excited about another big machine like what i want to do is I want to flesh out the little nitty gritty of my business and I want to make that better. You know, like the thought of a coolant vacuum or here's a funny one. This is, I think this is laughable. I have a Kaiser SX5 air compressor that I bought brand new, air center. So it's got the tank and the refrigerator dryer. It's like 9,700 bucks or something. And I literally, I kid you not, I have like a Home Depot, like a Husky 3.8 airline that runs from the compressor to my Haas and that's it. And it's got like a quick coupler. I don't have an air system because I just, I never felt like it was worth installing it because I really only need it for the Haas. And I, the only reason I bought such a nice compressor was so that I wouldn't have to upgrade it or replace it later. And because I didn't want to listen to a piston, but it's like in what plant, like in what universe would you spend that much money on your compressor and then not run plumbing around the shops that you could freaking use it? You know, like, so (laughs) I don't even have a compressed air gun on my lathe. So anyway, like that's the kind of thing that I'm excited about is like, you know, in the next six months, hopefully when, when, you know, like God, financially just moving into this building has been nuts and like time wise. And like, I just want to take a vacation and like, anyway, yeah. so like, but sometime in the next year, that's the kind of thing I'm excited about is like, I want to set up a, like a, we have a, like a car wash, like wash your Corvette in your driveway with this water deionizer. And like, you won't leave mineral streaks. Like that's the kind of deionizer I have. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like 2.5 gallons per minute max. And so I want to, I want to build a system where there's a reservoir so that it slowly fills that and it's got a float valve 
and it's got a safety overflow that it would just gravity down into a drain if it ever overflowed somehow. So it's really safe. And I want to put a pump in that and I want to be able to pump that to my machines through PEXLINE. And so I have this whole idea and like, that's the kind of thing I'm excited about, like buying another VMC or something like maybe in the next like year or two, or like maybe if I have a, a hit product that I think of that requires it, but I think like where, and maybe this is just growing up or something, but I feel like where I'm at now, like I'm just excited about doing more with what I already have, you know, like getting, getting my employee better trained up and like making more spreadsheets and things that allow me to like, that's what, that's what gets me excited. Yeah, actually to, uh, we have a s- small air system. Like we had put in a drop over or like a, a, a U over the bay and then like a drop by the what was it was actually just the side of the shop when we first got the kitty and just like left it there and added more and more teas and stuff to like get more airlines out of it. And finally this last week we bought a ton of copper and I'm actually sitting next to a box of copper fittings and stuff. Cause nice. we're, we're finally going to finish the whole thing and do a loop because I've had like yeah a few lines just run across the floor between the S 700 and the F 600 since it got there. And I'm like, this just sucks. Like, I want it to yeah. be like, I've, I don't know how many times I've tripped over that damn air hose. And I'm like, all right, this is this is stupid. Like, we we have the ability to fix this. Yeah, I have uh, the the building seller left like a 60 gallon, five horsepower piston compressor. And so I think at some point I'm going to move my Kaser into a different position and rewire it. And then I'm going to uh, I'm going to plumb up, you know, rapid pipe or something around the shop, black pipe copper i'm not sure but i'll do a whole loop of a large diameter so that it can flow because like right now on my haas if i do like a tool change when the compressor is like close to its low point like it'll give me a low air warning like it doesn't ever alarm out and stop the program but like it's not enough air and so anyway um i'm gonna build that and i'll probably use this other compressor as like a as a backup for emergencies and I want to pressure test the tank and then I'm going to uh, hook it in and use it as like additional storage too. Right. There's a vintage machinery.org Keith Rucker video about pressure testing a used air compressor tank with like just a consumer grade water pressure washer. And it's really cool. And I want to do that because it sounds like fun. And also like the amount of energy that gets stored up in an air tank is terrifying. It is a bomb. And so like, yeah. I don't, I don't want an old tank of unknown strength with you imagine like a five horsepower motor is running for eight minutes, putting energy into this tank. And then what, you know, like, I don't want, yep. I don't want to be in the same room as that. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's the truth. You, you don't really think about compressed air as energy like that, but yeah, yeah. more or less as just a giant bomb waiting to happen. If it's not a, yeah. a good tank. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, like I've watched YouTube videos of like, you know, like collected videos of it. It's freaking terrifying. It'll scare you straight. Oh yeah. Well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which is what did you research this week? So what's on your mind? So I'm glad I have an answer for this. So this last two, three weeks, like one of my favorite things to do is to watch the technology connections, YouTube channel. Have you ever seen this? I don't think so. So this guy is a freaking great. A dork. I love him. And he's got all these videos about like a lot of them are about like uh, VHS versus beta, laser disc, that sort of thing. But then oh, there's you know like all I sorts of other topics. I watched his uh, dishwasher explained one. I was just watching that the other day. He really kind of changed my mind on that. Well, I didn't have much of an opinion. It was pretty funny, actually. 
he gets fired up about that. But I wanted to mention Technology Connections YouTube channel because I feel like people who are interested in machining would probably appreciate that. And, you know, I have a little bit of nostalgia for these like older like media formats and stuff. And like I did a little bit of like audio production, like I was in bands and I played guitar a lot when I was younger. And so like I have a little bit of audio engineering background and I had a media history class in college that talked a little bit about like the super heterodyne and like all these different, you know, like vintage radio and TV things. So I know like just a little bit about that and and watching that YouTube channel is like, this guy is like so pedantic and particular and thorough (laughs) and I love it. It's really good. He has ones about like a power, power transmission and things that are related to like electrical supply and just, just like, and there's a billion videos and they're all good. And it's just like my favorite thing to watch lately. He has like this question embodied in a YouTube channel. I completely agree. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. What did you research this week? And he had a really good one about extension cords. I think that's what what kicked off the craze for me. Because if you know anything about wiring, you know, like I just wired my shop. I kind of taught myself how to wire up machines and shop over the last five years or seven years or something. Just one project at a time and kind of get more serious as you go. And you learn, you know, who to ask. Like uh, my friend's dad's a licensed master electrician. So I'll do my own research and then I'll, I'll ask him questions. And I think he appreciates that I'm not asking the, the most stupid basic questions that I've like done my research first. So <laughs> that's been really helpful. But anyway, yeah, if you know anything about the United States sort of power system and the way that we, you know, the electric code, uh, uh, like extension cords are pretty stupid. They're like really dangerous, actually, There they can be because they're not fused. So like the circuit breaker protects the wiring. So, you know, you would, you would, you would size, you know, your 12 gauge or 10 gauge conductors, depending on your load. And then you would use a circuit breaker to protect the wiring. But like, if you have a 30 amp circuit or let's say a 20 amp circuit, but you have like a 16 gauge extension cord, you can fricking fry that extension cord. Cause there's no like overcurrent protection on it. And so anyway, he's got a good video on that too. Yeah. Well, I'll try to. Remember to put one, at least one of his videos in the uh, show notes just so people can check him out. Cause yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And like you said, he's like super particular and really goes in depth, but it is pretty engaging, which is really fun to watch. Yeah. I think I'm, I can be a little bit pedantic and like, I've always been like a sort of engineering technical kind of brain person. Like it bothers me when people give an answer to a question that's not specific enough. And I know that I tend to be long winded and like over explain stuff, but I really appreciate the way that he like gets into stuff. Definitely. I think that that's a great, what did you research this week? Yeah. What did you research? What have you been up to? Well, a lot of it was LTL shipping, you know, getting recommendations from people and quotes and figuring all that out. For example, like I went with YRC, which mainly because their online tool was so easy to use, like within five seconds, I had a quote. I was like, here's the, here are the two like zip codes. Here's the weight and size of the packaging. Here's what I want it. And it was like, boom, there's your quote. I was like, cool. Okay. But just to, to demonstrate why you want to get more than one quote, I think I spent a thousand dollars to get it here from New York. And that was like insuring it at the top level because normally it's $2 a pound insurance or something like that. So yeah, it was like just over a thousand dollars, I think. And XPO wanted $3,700 to get it here. Jeez. And I was like, so I'm going to spend either more than the unit or much less on shipping it here. And like, I, I had budgeted 
figuring it would be around a thousand dollars. Like, and really it would have been, I think under $500 if I just was okay with chancing it and not insuring it at the top level. But I was like, you know, I'm getting such a good deal on this. There's no way I can replace it for even at the top level. So like, I want to get at least my money back if they just happen to drop it off the back of the trailer or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's it kind of sucks when you gotta like study up about something that's like a total snoozer that you're not interested in. But I feel like, you know, usually there's something to be learned there, especially like running a shop. Like you're always gonna be, you know, moving stuff around, either your own equipment or or stuff for customers or, you know, something. It's like it's it it's it builds character, you know. Yeah. And then the other thing actually that I was researching this week was kind of twofold. I was looking at boss lasers, like laser cutters. Cause we were packaging an order this last weekend and, you know, having to stuff with like paper and, and you know, it was just like, this is a pain. Like it'd be kind of nice to just be able to cut yeah. foam for all this stuff. Absolutely. I've, I've thought about that for myself. So I'm curious to hear what you've learned. Well, just from the people I've talked to, it sounds like, I, I don't know, like I, I'm still kind of on the fence of what I'm going to do. Like I talked to a few people that own boss lasers and like, it's nice. They're, they're more or less Chinese lasers that are rebranded and, you know, have us based support but they had kind of mixed reviews on their support so i'm like i don't know if it's worth the extra you know i'm looking at their smallest one which is like the 14 by 20 and it's like an extra 1500 bucks to get it from boss instead of just buying it off of ebay as whatever the chinese counterpart is so i'm still kind of up in the air and really like i'm I'm probably not going to get one now for a little while now that we got this oc coming but yeah it was I don't know. I, I I think I need to talk some to some more users of them. I know there's a lot of people in the community that have one. Brad's got one at his day job. It seems like it works all right. I might talk to somebody that has one and be like, hey, can you do some cuts so I know what 100 watts of power actually means? Because like, it'd be mm-hmm. nice if I could do dual duty and like also do some light engraving yeah. uh, on some parts and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I guess I walked away with more questions than answers at this point. <laughs> Uh, the research is not done. And then the other thing that I, we are, I'm going to try out, I think not tomorrow, but the next day is we are going to try using our oldest CNC, the TC as a CNC drag knife. Oh, cool. Cause I have some, it's like gasket material more or less that one of my customers wants us to cut. Like they were, they were like, we've tried laser in the past. It doesn't work great. We've tried water jet. It works okay. And so like I tried to get some water jet quotes and it was just taking like a long time. Like I hate going, you know, multi-levels deep trying to yeah. get something done. And like when I talked to them some more, they're like, oh yeah, we've had like the way that industry does this is, you know, CNC drag knifing. But like we don't want to like find a new vendor for that. And then Brad was like, oh, well, we have a drag knife that I bought years ago just as a fun thing and we never tried it. Um, and there's a $10 plugin or app for Fusion that you can buy in the Fusion app store. Mm-hmm. And it'll take posted code and add all of the little dipty doos at corners so that it can reorient the blade. So, yeah, I've got a few sheets of that stuff on its way. I think it'll be here tomorrow and then I'm going to give it a shot. That's awesome. Fingers crossed it work. It'd be, it'd be really, really nice to be able to do that in house. Like I'd be able to turn it around quicker. And I think it'd be easier and, you know, I won't have to deal with tabs and cutting off tabs from water jet and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I I love that. I think something I've learned 
for my own process stuff over the years is like, you know, you hate to use the wrong tool for the job, but like, I don't know, sometimes you're just like really good at something and you're not good at other things and you don't have access to other stuff. So, you know, like sometimes you just, you use what you have or like, like something like on this frame fixture that we make, we use like aluminum T-slot extrusion, you know, like people call it 8020. We use a different mm-hmm. brand, but use my Sumi stuff. It's actually made in Japan and they ship it to us. It's a pain in the ass, but it's like, it's good stuff. And anyway, on that stuff, it's just like dealing with suppliers and like, and just shipping, like it comes damaged sometimes. And like, we can't use that stuff. And and it's just like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like for the task at hand, it's a really good product once we get it. But like managing that vendor relationship sucks. And what is the one thing that we're really good at? We're really good at making parts. We have automatic bandsaw, forklift, CNC mill, lots of work holding. Like we can make the shit out of some parts. So, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, if we had to make it at scale, then like you really wouldn't want to machine certain things a certain way. But, but like for, to solve the problem that we have, sometimes it actually makes sense to use what you know is sort of the wrong process just because like you're disproportionately good at one thing, you know? And so like, if you have a CNC mill and you have a drag knife, it's like, that's not the way you'd want to make a million gaskets, but it might be actually an exceptionally good way to make, you know, some for your existing customer. Right. Yeah. And I think as far as I know, they haven't told me otherwise. I think these are all relatively low quantity prototypes. Yeah. And it's like, man, if I can get by and like get it done for them quicker and with less overhead and all that stuff, that's a win. And that machine is currently sitting anyway, waiting for other material that I'm waiting, you know, cheap. So it's like, shoot, you know, it's, It's just idle spindle time anyway. I might as well use it. Yeah, really. Yeah. And especially like, yeah, like who even cares what the cycle time is, you know? Right. Yeah. Probably be fast, but. Yeah, I would think so. You know, it's like Marv talking about the scribing. Like when you're not spinning a spindle, you're not worried about like chip load or anything. You're just like dragging it. Like every video I've seen of drag knifing, like they were, I think they were doing vinyl or whatever, but they were running like 80 inches a minute or something like that. Yeah. I was like, that's kind of cool. So yeah. We'll see. We shall see. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me again. I feel like, you know, we talked a little bit over DMs and texts and stuff, but it's always cool to get to sit down and spend a couple hours just chatting and catching up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, your podcast is my favorite. I recommend it to a lot of people. I think it's doing a lot for this industry and for for like our generation. I'm sure not everybody who listens is exactly in my position, but I feel like there are a lot of people who who are growing up with this resource the last couple of years and it's kind of changed the way they enter this world and, and like the connections they make and their perceptions about, you know, like what's a good opportunity and what isn't. And I think it's just a huge value. I recommend it to my, my friend, Matt would be like plowing for the city and listening to the podcast and just different friends. Like I just like recommend it to people and they get into it and they get a win. Even if they don't do this every day, they get a window into this world that they maybe otherwise wouldn't get. And it, it, networking, it's just, it's really valuable and it's just entertainment for me. So I appreciate you doing this and then it's an honor to be on it. So thank you. Really, I, that feels so great because I, I love doing <laughs> it and I love, you know, providing that kind of community. Like I, I've met so many cool people like you from it. So it, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, keep I, doing it. I mean, definitely. you know, to the extent that you have the capacity, I, I have my own podcast. I'm really bad about keeping consistent. You're really good at you. You do yours pretty much every single week. So thank you. <laughs> my, my pleasure. And thank you to all the Patreon patrons who help me do this every week. You know, it, it definitely helps. You know, I'm able to send people 
stuff that when I need it, I mean, like you said, you have a podcast, so I didn't need to send you anything, but I'm able to upgrade my equipment when I need it and all the overhead and it just really, really helps. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back next week.